Welcome to the Archive Room podcast. This is Judith Lay inviting you to join me again in the Archive Room, Manx Radio's store of tales of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. In this mini-series of three programmes that will be broadcast over the coming week, I'm looking back over some of the memories we've shared since we started digging deep into the station's archives. So many great stories and great storytellers too. And because we're very close to the big day, tonight's selection comes from the shelf marked Christmas. Vintage Station Jingle starts us on our journey back in time to the days when vivid memories of happy times often came from very simple things. That was certainly true of one of Manx Radio's most accomplished presenter-producers, David Collister. David's was a familiar voice gently coaxing stories from his guests, but we seldom heard David himself being interviewed, until one Christmas, 15 years ago, when Geraldine Jamieson drew the three wise men of Manx Radio together for some festive reminiscing. Round the table were Terry Kringle, Bernie Quayle and David Collister, who had this to say about his childhood. The first 10 years of my life I lived in a, in a farm cottage. It was a two-up, two-down it housed, I think, six people, including me at the time. Uh, my maternal grandmother was blind and she occupied one of the downstairs rooms. She was in bed, but she did have the only radio in the house, which was supplied by Randall's, Randall's the battery company. They used to come around week by week, top yes, up your nuclear yeah. battery and so on. I could only hear this radio from the other room. I never got close enough to it because I, I wasn't supposed to as a kid go into grandmother's room, you see. And it was a house without electricity. It was a house without running water in the house. In fact, we drew the water from what was called laughingly a well, which was nothing much more than a cattle trough at the side of the road. I think the quality of the water might have been suspect. Whether it was all uh, boiled before use, I have no idea. But I would go to bed with a, a candlestick and a candle to light me up the stairs. Yes. We were very, very poor. I mean, when you hung up your stockings, early memories anyway, you got little more than, don't forget, I'd be four years old when the war started. You'd get an apple, you'd get an orange, you might get a pair of socks. Some nuts would be very likely. Yeah. I don't remember that we ever had sweets and chocolates at that time. We always had, at the bottom of this sock, sock or stocking, something was wrapped up in scores and scores of wrappings, and we knew what it was going to be eventually. It was a piece of coal, and, uh, and my mother's idea was it was for luck. You had a piece of coal for luck. Always my father used to have paper streamers which were fitted diagonally across the ceiling of the room. The little light. Yeah, that was right. Those were the decorations. We might have had a tree. I don't remember trees, though I remember well the smell of the Christmas trees. But my presents, other than whatever was in this stocking, were made by my father. My father was very, very useful as an artist. He he painted. In, In fact, many of his paintings he did as presents at Christmas and gave them to members of the family. 
And he used to make our toys. He, he made farmyards with all the animals. He'd, he'd cut them out with threat saw and so on. And he'd paint them, and we had all cattle and, and sheep and, and so on. They were absolutely fabulous. Of course, I don't know what ever happened to them. These things get lost eventually, don't they? So from David Collister to the second wise man at Geraldine Jameson's Christmas table, it's Bernie Quayle, whose first broadcast on Manx Radio was in July 1967. And the trio is completed by Terry Kringle, who joined Manx Radio in 1969 when he moved from being a journalist with the Examiner newspaper to start Manx Radio's first independent news service. Childhood Christmases, I think, the most important ones, and belief in Father Christmas. I can remember being so excited, I just wouldn't go to bed. I maybe was about four or five years of age. My mother was saying, for heaven's sakes, he's not going to come if you don't go to bed. And she said, listen, I can hear the sleigh bells. And so she opened the window into the backyard, and sure enough, I could hear the sleigh bells too. It was incredible. So she said, he must be just flying around waiting for you to go to bed. And I dashed upstairs, jumped into bed, and lay there with the covers over me. It wasn't until a year or so later that my brother revealed my father had gone upstairs into the bathroom right above the kitchen window and the little reins I used to have with the little bells on <laughs> hanging outside the window shaking these things. <laughs> I was so convinced that Santa was flying around the house and I could hear the sleigh bells. But in those days, the extended family, my father had three brothers, my mother had sisters living on the island, all with children, and there was a wonderful spirit of all getting together and aunts and uncles, as David was just saying, they used to make things. I had so many little sweaters made for me, scarves and gloves and things like that. It was a magical time, it really was. What about you, Terry? Family Christmases more than anything else. I was born in 1931, so my earliest memories of Christmas as a small boy were before the war, and the war changed a lot of things. Certainly as far as family unity was concerned, after the war, my family split up a lot. You know, they'd married men from outside the island or women from outside the island. But what I remember was my family were all in the boarding house business, and the biggest boarding house we had was the Clarendon Unlocked Promenade, which has now been demolished. And that was run by a granddad, Kringle, and he would have the whole family there for Christmas Day. And, of course, the boarding houses had a fine big dining room where the visitors used to have their meals. So that would where we'd have our Christmas party. And when the families got there, all the ladies went down into the kitchens to do all the cooking. And the men stayed upstairs and had a few drinks, you know, Guinness and uh, bottled beer and things like that. Spirits, not so much. We weren't that well off. And, of course, all the children were there. We had a Christmas tree. We all had presents with us. And we played games more than anything else. Usually board games. Yeah. It would be Ludo or, or uh, Snakes and Ladders. Of course, we had the Christmas pudding as well with the meal. And we, there would be thrippany bits yeah. in the Christmas puddings. And you had to eat your Christmas pudding very carefully because you could <laughs> swallow one of those. Just wondered what the best toys you ever had when you were small. It was a, a set of Roy Rogers... Guns with the, the, the holsters and everything. Right. That was the best one I ever had. For me, it was toy soldiers. Still is, yes. Yeah, I, 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 I collect them. I did eventually get a tricycle. I remember having a tricycle. I had one a little pedal car. And I had a rocking horse at some time as well. Christmas memories from the three wise men of Manx Radio. David Collister, Bernie Quayle and Terry Kringle.
This is a sound that would be as familiar as a Christmas carol if, like Mary Radcliffe, you happen to be a poultry farmer. And as I discovered through talking with Mary and her daughter Claire, now Claire Quayle, what is hard work for one person is a time of precious memories for another. The traditional bird dominates not just thoughts of Christmas, but pretty much the whole of your year, as Mary Radcliffe explains. Well, we used to breed them. They would start to lay the eggs in about March mm. and then uh, four weeks and they would be hatched out. And They're very difficult things to rear. Right. Turkey chicks, yes, you know, until they get oh, three or four months. They're awful delicate things. It was terrible hard work at Christmas, mm. you know. By the time we'd done the geese, I mean, one year we had about 100 geese to dress and deliver. For Mary Radcliffe's daughter, Claire, now Claire Quayle, her Christmas memories growing up on the farm are of the preparation of the poultry. But to a child, this was full of novelty rather than hard work. Christmas always started with the preparation of the poultry. You know, uh, Mum said about all all the the hard work that went into it, but I don't know do we realise when we were children what work went into this. But I can remember... All the ladies round the kitchen table, which was then turned into the preparation of these turkeys, the men would kill them and pluck them, and they'd be brought up from the bottom yard up into the kitchen, and there'd be my grandmothers, both of them. There was the ladies that worked for mum and a lady that used to just come down on a Thursday. But they'd be all round the kitchen table, and they would all have their aprons on, and we always had broth that day, homemade broth. It was always homemade broth the day that they were doing the poultry because it was done beforehand because they were always so busy that day. And it may sound so gruesome now, but, you know, you'd come home and there'd be buckets on the floor. You know, their innards all sitting there. But that was part of Christmas. And I can still smell that smell of the poultry being done. And then the coldest place in the farmhouse when I was young was the bathroom. So the bathroom was turned into a larder and we used to put a table in. And my sisters and I would put them into uh, greaseproof paper and take them upstairs into the bathroom and put them on this table. And we learnt our maths because we were given the job of weighing the turkeys, working out the price of them and putting on the labels. And then we would have a list of the customers and who wanted what or you'd have to work out the nearest one to whatever they wanted but our biggest day was the day that we delivered the poultry we would go to Douglas and we we had quite a lot of customers in Douglas and as children we would go and then we went to see Father Christmas in the co-op it was our big treat and that was the beginning of Christmas Christmas lunch was always a bit later because Dad would always have to do the milking or the fixing up, as we used to call it, before you would even sort of start Christmas. Being on a farm, that's what it meant, you know. So Dad would be out doing the milking, so he would come in, if you were lucky, nine, half nine, and then we were allowed to open our presents, but not until then. You know, (laughs) is he finished yet? Is he finished yet? And then we would all sit down to... uh, It was more like a Sunday lunch, really. And then, you know, Daddy would have to go out again to fix up again at night. So, you know, it was not really like the Christmas days that we've got today. No. It was much more uh, simpler. 
And I don't think we had the same expectations that there are today. You know, um, Christmas is hyped up so much, you know, must have the perfect Christmas. But looking back, I think we did have the perfect Christmas, but in, it was much simpler. Ramsey was very thriving then, and you could get everything you needed in Ramsey then. It was very busy and very active, and, but it didn't go on for a long time time it was christmas day and boxing day and then that was it when i was small going back an awful long way now mr brew used to have a butcher shop and that's where we put our geese that weren't going to private customers and when we took them to be delivered he always had and it was i just loved to see them he always had the pigs killed and raid outside the shop and their mouths open and oranges in them. I thought, oh, this is really Christmas, you know. Christmas was so much at night, you know, Christmas Eve and everything. Shops were open. Do you remember them Christmases, Annie, when the shops was lit with oil lamps and gas and they looked cosy and warm and inviting and folks had crowd round for a skis at this pass? There was one feller I mind made his winter a pitcher with bun loafs and holly. My, my, me mouth waters yet at the thought of them, for they were the best on the island. Oh, aye. And all them turkeys and geese in the butchers, fat as mullocks, chickens too, a fine mob, and joints of beef from the prize Christmas cattle, and a pig with an orange in his gob. And the town'd be busy till midnight with people shopping or having a couche, and you'd hear, I'll again, old Mrs. Kelly, and same to you and blind why no, Mr. Carouche. And you remember the stars in the sky, gal, sparkling like jewels in the keen frosty air, as the choirs made their way singing carols from the market through the streets to the square. Oh, aye, them those was the good old days, Annie when hosses clip-clopped in dog-cart or brome, and God's peace filled folks' hearts as they parted to spend a real owl-fashioned Christmas at home. Music from Manx Choir Cleogory Tui, poetry by Kathleen Farragher, recited by Jack Corrin, and mother and daughter Mary Radcliffe and Claire Quayle share memories of poultry farming. For many years, John Kenyuk presented the popular farming programme that he described as items of interest from the Manx countryside in general and from farming in particular. But here's a chance for roles to be reversed. Let's join David Collister as he goes to chat with John Kenyuk on Home Territory. December in the countryside at Ballawillen in German and I've come down to see John Kenyuk today on the farm. Well, December in the countryside for the farmer means you can put your feet up and take a rest, does it? Well, you, you can take a rest from certain jobs, you can take a rest from the field work, and our work now in December and the ensuing months will be very much concerned with livestock and their welfare. 
From the day you buy your first cow, you're utterly committed to it twice a day and some people now three times a day milking. Mm. But it's a job that uh, we went into with our eyes open. We know full well what it means. It's a way of life. You get used to it. Christmas Day or any other day, milking first thing in the morning and again late afternoon is just part of the way of life. What about Christmas Day itself then? I mean, that's, that becomes a working day for you as well, is it? We only leave the essentials to be done on Christmas Day, and that is what, what the cows and the cattle and the sheep need. Um, we try to prepare as much as ever we can prior to Christmas Day. I've always been a great believer that everybody, as far as possible, should be as close to home as possible. And we've always tried to ensure that those who work with us uh, have the day off at Christmas Day so that they can be home with their families and we actually live here, so we are home, and we undertake to do all the work ourselves. It does make it quite busy for us, but we can cope. Um, we can usually get the yard work finished, get to chapel for about half past nine on Christmas morning, back from the service with the family then till afternoon milking. As you walk out and, and look at the cattle in the stalls, there's a picture of Christmas there for you. I mean, is there a special feeling at Christmas on a farm, would you say? Oh, yes, I think... In, in spite of the fact that we may complain uh, about having to work over the Christmas holidays when everybody's enjoying a few days off, I've come to realise over the past few years that, uh, yes, we, we are privileged in a way to be very, very closely related to the Christmas story. And although farms have modernised a great deal in, in recent times, I would think on most farms there's still a stable, there's still the manger somewhere there, and I think he would be a very hard farmer indeed, who came in at bedtime on Christmas Eve, having been round the stock for the last time, not to have felt something a bit special about that particular evening. Our final nugget of nostalgia pays tribute to two people who, through their teaching skills, have enabled countless people to experience the joy of singing and feel confident when giving anything from a lecture to a brief vote of thanks. It would be impossible to work out how many people Mrs Pat Corrin helped to become confident speakers or how many people Mrs Eleanor Shimon has filled with a love of music. Here, Mrs. Pat Corrin recites from the works of Manx poet Kathleen Farragher, and that's followed by the Egg Threshlin Children's Choir, founded by Mrs. Eleanor Shimon and directed by her for over 25 years. No light inside the little church, save that on crib and laden tree, where shadows hover warm and dark with air of deep expectancy. Then, through the ancient oaken door, the guides and brownies wend their way on quiet feet, and from each hand a candle sheds its softened ray. How reverently they take their place within God's house, and as they sing, their sweet young voices tell again the story of the babe, the king. They bring before our eyes the star, the shepherds resting in the field above the hills of Bethlehem, where God's great purpose was revealed. They sing the message from their hearts, their youthful faces all aglow with earnestness and joy and love. God grant, wherever they may go, that faith will guide them through the years, unfaltering, steadfast, shining bright,
as when they sang and knelt and prayed in Doon's small church by candlelight.
And with the pure voices of Eleanor Shimmons' Egg Threshlin Children's Choir, that's where we have to close the door to the archive room for this evening. But I'll be opening it again at noon on Boxing Day. The Foolish Fortnight actually starts today, December the 21st, and we'll be finding out more about that from Mona Douglas, as well as hearing from Dot Tilbury, Ian Qualtrough and Jeff the Mongoose. I do hope you can join me then. And my wishes for you are in these words from John Kenyuk. I wish you now the joy and the peace of the season. Mm-hmm.